Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. It's your mom's favorite podcast, <laughs> a.k.a. the Chad and Cheese Podcast. What's up, boys and girls? I am Joel Cheeseman, your co-host. Joined, as always, the jelly to my peanut butter. Chad Sowash is in the house. And today we welcome... Maria Colacurcio, CEO oh, yeah. at Sindio, and Anita Ledink, Future of Work Speaker and HR Tech Advisor. Ladies, that's a mouthful. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. From Bye. all over. Now, Maria, where are you at right now? Well, normally I am in Bellevue, Washington, outside Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. but right now I'm in Redwood City, California. So, you know. Okay. Same coast, same coast, but we have Anita, who's all the way across the other side of the pond. Mm-hmm. Now, you're in the Netherlands. Where at in the Netherlands, Anita? I live close to Amsterdam. Nice. Oh, well, that's a bummer. That must, yeah. that must suck, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. <laughs> Well, let's let's go ahead and do this. Let's go over. Let's do some some Twitter bios real quick. Just really short about you. Long walks on the beach, what you like to do, all that other fun stuff. Uh, Anita, go ahead and go first. I like to travel. I like to read, and I do a lot of public speaking. Um, as you said, HR tech and uh, payroll advisor, and currently writing a book on equal pay. Shocking. Imagine that. So where's your where's your favorite place to travel to? Oh, good question. I like San Francisco. Okay. Mm. I like New York was there last year. Okay. This year I went to Slovenia where I had never been. And that was awesome. And where's your least favorite, whether it's based on the city is shit or the people are assholes? I don't know. I I don't <laughs> I don't have a city where I think I never want to go there again because there's really? always something. I mean, the moment you're at the airport, it mm-hmm. feels like vacation, at least for me. Yeah, we'll give you a long list about ones here in the states that you okay. just don't want to mess with. So, Maria, over to you. Give us a quick Twitter bio about you. Okay, I, as you said, am the CEO of Cindio, so mm-hmm. I am obsessed with all things workplace equity, which is important. I also am obsessed with these crazy fitness competitions that started in Europe. So they're on trend with our theme today, which is Europe, the EU directive. Uh And they involve running, pushing a heavy sled, all sorts of crazy stuff. I'm just, I love it. Are you old enough to remember American Gladiators? Yes. (laughs) There's a great documentary called Muscles and Mayhem, I think, on Netflix that that documents the rise and fall of American Gladiators. It was it was awesome as someone who was there. Are you a big CrossFitter? Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's not really CrossFit. I think CrossFit's starting to come into the sport. It's called Mm -hmm. High Rocks and my friend's daughter was like, if you have to spell it, it's not a sport. So <laughs> there's that opinion. High rocks is what I say at the bar on Friday night. <laughs> but it's running. You run a, about 8K. So you run a kilometer and then you do some sort of thing. And it's pushing a heavy sled, doing lunges with a sandbag on your back. And then you run again. 
So it's a lot of running. So what it does is for us littler folk, I'm only five, mm-hmm. four, it kind of balances it out because I might not be as good on an erg or a rower or a ski because I'm not as heavy, but I can make up for it on the run. So it feels equalizing and I'm all about equity. So it sounds like equity to me, which pay, goes right into today's subject. What a great, what a great segue, Maria. I thought she was going to say do a, do a 1K and then chug a beer. I <laughs> I wasn't expecting I mean, push something. There are hard. those. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. There are those. And they do pay their male and female winners the same. So that's another big plug for the sport. Very oh, happy. You can thank women's soccer for that. Okay. So let's go. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and jump directly into today's EU directive on transparency. We also want to talk a little bit about uh, the US and how we're, we're being impacted. But I think it's, it's important to uh, set up some context for those listeners who don't really understand the problem, let alone this new directive. So let's, let's get into some causation real quick. The gender pay gap basically defined as my definition is men getting paid more for doing the exact same job as women are doing. In the US, the newest Pew research shows that uh, compared to white men, white women get paid 83 cents on the dollar, black women 70 cents on the dollar, and Hispanic women 65 cents on the dollar. So how did we get here? How did we, how did this huge gap, this huge pay gap actually form? How did it happen? Yeah, so there there are several reasons for the pay gap. Traditionally, men negotiate better than women. That Mm -hmm. has always been thought. But what new research actually shows is that male bosses are more inclined to give men who negotiate a higher salary than women who negotiate. There are all kinds of reasons why this has happened. Other reasons are, for instance, women taking a career break because they are the ones to have children, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously. And interestingly enough here is that there's also a fatherhood bonus. So if you are a man with children, Mm -hmm. research has shown that you get higher raises simply because employers think that you provide more or you have more stability in your uh, career. So those are two reasons. I think a big part of this is because companies are not yet realizing that they are accountable for this. And it's incumbent upon the employer to make sure they're analyzing pay equity to ensure they don't have disparities that are because of gender, race, or ethnicity. So one of the things that drives me nuts is when people start talking about negotiation, for example. If you're dinging people because they're not a good negotiator, that is not the person's problem. That is your problem as an employer because negotiation is not typically something that you want to say is a reason you pay what you pay. So I think one of the things that's really interesting with all these transparency laws that are accelerating really quickly around the country and around the world is that companies now have to be pretty responsible for understanding why they pay what they pay. And in the past, when you look at the way pay equity analyses were done, they were sort of this like archaic, clunky, backward looking thing. And nobody really understood why it is they pay an engineer X or another engineer Y. And so the more accountable you make employers on that, the better it will get. So uh, Anita said something that that struck me where, let's say, for instance, uh, a an individual has been, quote unquote, mommy tracked, right? We've heard of that that uh, before, where obviously they, they've got to go out. You're having the baby, you're having your 12 weeks or the, the amount of weeks that you're going to have. And therefore, you're automatically set back. 
at that point, are we actually identifying this in organizations or to be able to help them stop doing this? Or is this a part of the equation and or formula they're using and they think it's it's okay and it's right? Yeah. I mean, I can take this first and then Anita would love to hear your perspective. So one of the things we see all the time is an organization will say they pay for tenure. So they pay for time enrolled. That's one of the reasons why they pay what they pay. And if you look at the detail in the pay policy analytics that we offer in our product, what's really interesting is a lot of times men and women will start out making the same. Sometimes women even start out making more. But over time, what happens is that men's pay increases And women's pay sort of flatlines or goes down. And a lot of times it can be attributed to parental leave. So also men are more aggressively negotiating retention increases and women aren't. Or maybe they're hitting a promotion cycle while they're out on leave. So they're missing that cycle and they're not actually getting to take advantage of it because they're gone. So they're passed over. So these are all things that a company can easily prevent if they're doing analysis and using software to make sure they deeply understand Mm -hmm. what their pay policies are doing or not doing. And, and trust me, I mean, I've had seven kids, so what? Yeah, I have seven kids. Um, (laughs) You look like you're in your mid twenties. How do you have seven kids? (laughs) Oh, you're the best man. That's why I'm wearing your shirt. (laughs) It's the shirt that makes me look young. No, I mean, that's six parental leaves, right? So so you add all that time up and and that's a lot of time. And so you've just got to really understand how that's impacting folks and use analytics to make sure you're not having that Passover effect. What are we seeing in Europe around the same conversation? We have the exact same conversation really? here. In fact, yeah, the EU directive came about because we have this persistent pay gap in the EU. It's about 13%. We don't, do not break it down into race, so we don't have those numbers. But in the past decade, it has only gone down with 3%, even though equal pay for equal work, treating people equally at work has been part of the EU legislations since forever. Yeah. And so that hasn't helped. And that is why we now have um, the new uh, EU pay directive. Okay. So before we jump with both feet into the EU pay directive, Maria said something around negotiating. And and, and negotiating has been like uh, the almost like an American pastime, right? It's like if you can't negotiate for more, that's that's your fault. Now that's been put on the individual as opposed to the employer for probably 100 years plus, right? So so how do we get past this narrative or this thought, this thinking, this behavior to stop thinking that somebody who can negotiate is just a better employee because that's what it comes down to, right? Yeah, you've got to give companies tools to address this and you've got to give them tools to address it at the recruitment level and at the hiring manager level. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's really common for our customers is there's a solution called PayFinder. I'm not getting salesy, but you'll understand in a sec why I'm referencing this. And what it does is it sits on top of your latest pay equity analysis. So you're good. You've done the analysis. You've remediated. You have no issues that are because of gender, race, or ethnicity. You're feeling good. But now your recruiters and your hiring managers are going to go off and not only make a bunch of new hire offers, but they're going to promote a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And so how do you make sure that you stay in range with those new hire offers and those promotion offers so that you don't muck everything up? And when you're looking back to do your next analysis, you have a bunch more issues. So to me, it's really that 
that starting pay, which is the biggest factor in any pay equity analysis, you have to have guidance. You've got to guide the discretion with real-time data so that you know a range within which to stay. And if you've got that, if someone's negotiating, that's fine. But you also have that guiding light of what is the range within which I need to stay here so that I don't create issues moving forward. And that range is based on folks in your company who are already doing that same work and what are they getting paid. Have things gotten better or worse since the pandemic? I would say roughly the same, maybe even a bit better because what you see with especially younger people is that they insist on seeing ranges, salary ranges in job ads. If it's not there, then they are much less likely to come and work for you. They simply want to know what you will pay or whereabouts Mm, um, their salary will be. So I think slowly... It's getting better, but what you see happening at the moment is that there are companies that are publishing these enormous ranges. Uh Zero to two million, I think. Exactly, those types of... uh, Is that Citibank that did that? And with new legislation coming in, you will see that go down because you simply cannot keep that up. Your current employees see that. And if you start to publish ranges that are far outside what you what you give your tenured employees, then you have an immediate issue on your hands. Yeah. So there have been some excesses, I would say, but it is being normalized as we speak. Okay. Chad and I talk all the time about how diversity and inclusion have been politicized mm-hmm. in America. And it becomes an issue where companies just say, screw it, I'm out. I don't... I'm, I sell stuff to everybody and I don't want to get involved in this political thing. Transparency seems to like be on that balance of not quite political, but could fall into political sort of arguments. Where does it fall in in European terms? Does anyone talk about this as a political issue or, or is it sort of a we're all on board this progress? I wouldn't say we are all on board, but I would say it isn't nearly as politicized as it is in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. So the EU directive, when does it happen? Is it only Europe? Is the UK involved in any of this? Is it only focused on gender? Get specific about the directive. So it is for the, every country within the European Union, which at the moment is not the UK anymore um, mm-hmm. because of Brexit. So they left. They don't have to adhere except for the employees that they have in Europe. As for every company outside of Europe that employs people within uh, Europe. So the threshold for the first round in 2027 is 100 employees. If you have 100 employees, you will have to report annually on the gender pickup in your company, which means for, I would say, 90, maybe 95% of companies that they first have to understand what that is. So... During the next three years, they will be busy calculating, adjusting, reviewing so that they are ready for their first report, which is due by June 2027. Mm -hmm. And then they go on an annual repeat of that report. And then smaller companies have seven years before they have to submit their first report. And then they do it every three to four years. And it's not just gender, as I understand it. It's, I mean, you can't say just because you're older, you get less. It's a wide umbrella that's influenced by this law, correct? It's a wide umbrella, but as a company, you only have to report on the gender 
pay gap. But obviously, when you only look at the gender pay gap, you miss out on a whole lot of things. And as Maria can tell you, you need to look at much more elements of pay and compensation in order to bridge the gap. It is not just salary and it is not just gender. Yes. So, that, and, and there's my point to Maria. How do you help companies that are that are global organizations? They're seeing this happen in the EU. They're seeing it happening spotty through the United States. You know, something like this is going to happen in California and everybody does business in California, for God's sake. So, they're all going to have to do it. So, how do you start to get companies ready for this? move because many of them aren't ready. They, I don't know if they're not ready. They don't want to be ready. They're trying to push back and wait until they start seeing fines to see if they even need to start putting assets and, and resources to this. So, so what do you, how are you talking to those big organizations and helping them get ready to roll this out? Because this is like eating an elephant, right? You've got to do it one bite at a time. What are those bites? Yeah. So, and just a couple of numbers to kind of set the stage on that. So before the EU directive, there are about 18 countries in Europe where global pay reporting was required. And after the EU directive, that number jumps immediately to 32. The other element of this that Anita can talk about and she and I've had a lot of conversations about is this concept of career progression. So before, when you think about just a pure gender pay gap report, where you're looking at your median pay gap, your unadjusted gap. And, and for those who don't know, because these get conflated all the time, there's a difference between pay equity and the pay gap. Pay equity is looking at equal pay for equal work. So looking at folks doing similar jobs and are there disparities that you can't rule out are because of something like gender or ethnicity. The unadjusted pay gap is when you look at averages. So are all your men up here and all your women are down here? And what does that gap look like? So the reporting in the UK that's been around for a while required employers to publish their pay gap. And what's really interesting to watch is the United States traditionally in the past was focused on pay equity, mostly because companies had that risk of pay equity, class actions, litigation, and, and lawsuits. And now we're seeing this cross influence where Europe's focus on the unadjusted gap is starting to influence the U.S. and the U.S. focus on pay equity is starting to influence Europe. So you're really starting to see this global approach. And the EU directive is really the first time we're seeing that global approach. Now, for global companies, these global pay reports are a huge nut to crack. And so what we're really recommending to companies is don't wait until you hit the deadline. What you really should be doing is conducting in-depth pay equity analyses now, fixing whatever problems you have, remediating, putting plans in place to fix your promotion numbers or how people are moving throughout your organization so that when it is time to do the reporting, you're in a pretty good state. Because here's the thing, those reports are public. And everyone from investors to employees who potentially want to work for you are going to see those numbers. So the worst thing you could do is wait until those deadlines versus getting to work right now. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, we've created solutions over the past year, I would say, in anticipation of this to help companies get their arms around these global pay reports. Because one thing that folks don't realize until they start doing it is that of you know the 27 countries, there could be 27 different little nits and gnats in the reports that are a little bit different here and there. So it's not just one version. Some require career progression. Some require you know different, different cuts and slices of things. So it's really important to kind of take that into account consideration as well. Uh, Anita, when you're starting to see, I mean, many of these large companies, 
companies. And again, this is about eating the elephant. For me, we're in a great time where we've got data all over the place. We might not know where everything is, but being able to actually get specific types of platforms like Cindio in place to help you make sense of that. Are, are you starting to see more companies start to lean heavier on those types of platforms to start to figure this out? Because there's a lot of data um, getting to it might be a pain in the ass for some, but uh, being able to get to it and collect that data is really job one, right? Right. But then making sure that you're comparing apples to apples is probably the hardest part of all of this. I have been in global payroll for the past 20 years, and I have witnessed this whole move of companies trying to standardize their local payrolls at the regional level, at the global level. And that is only payroll. And it was super hard and it still is super hard to do. Now, you do not only need the information from your payroll system, also from your HR system, from maybe your compensation, your time system, your succession planning. So you have lots more data that you need to put together from different countries with different local regulations. And so understanding that equal pay for equal work works the same in the Netherlands as in Germany, as in France, as in Italy, where you have all these people is going to be very, very time consuming. Mm -hmm. It is not hard in the sense that you cannot put all that data together, but understanding what it means And what it means in Italy when you compare it to Poland or to Portugal, that is a whole different ballgame. Also, the EU directive is a generic law that needs to be adapted by the countries. Um, And countries must, as a minimum, take over the EU requirements, but are allowed to have stricter regulations. It's the same as... Um, the GDPR, where we all know that Germany has the most strict form of the GDPR, and therefore mm-hmm. a lot of hosting companies put their stuff in Germany because then they're covered for all of Europe. So something similar will probably happen for the EU directive. Countries do now have um, three years to put that into their local legislation, and then we'll see. Uh, so we're we're in a bit of a wait and see um, situation from a legislative perspective, you Mm. know what it will be. It might be a little bit stricter, but that does not mean that you can wait. Because my feeling is that if you come out in 2027 with a report that says, oh, wait, we have a pay gap and it is more than 5% and we need to do something about it. That people, you know, your employees will turn around and say, you knew this since 2023. You had four years to remedy this and you didn't. And I think that will be a breach of trust. Yeah, no question. So Maria, spending 20 years in the military, right? I I, I see the complexity of of, uh, corporate America. Right. And it's funny because the government usually is way too complex. But in this case, if you take a look at the military, you know what everybody gets paid. Everybody has a behavior and they don't, there's no negotiation. 
right? You have promotions, you have schools, you have all these things, but it fits within a framework that is incredibly transparent, probably because it's all paid by taxpayer dollars. But still, there's this this very simplistic model in which they have been able to deploy that helps to drive equity. Should we start cleaning the corporate system up and try to move it more towards something that's more structured and more systematic and, and, and transparent like that? I think that's what these laws are trying to do in their own way. Mm -hmm. And if you come back to the states and you look at Illinois, for example, so the Illinois law that was just passed included this provision of career progression, which is in the EU directive. So again, there's that cross influence. So you've got equal pay for work of comparative value. You've got pay and career progression transparency. You've got the right to information, which plays into what you're asking, pay reporting, and then a joint pay assessment. Those are really the components of the EU directive. So what Illinois does is Illinois talks about if you have a job that has a career progression. So let's say you're a machine operator and the next level is machine operator, senior or lead. Mm -hmm. They actually are requiring companies to lay out the career progression and explain in detail what skills need to be inquired in order to move up to that next level. So it really takes all the guessing out of promotions and who's being promoted and who's not. If someone is promoted, that promotion is required to be posted in terms of what what does it take to get into a role like that? So I think a lot of these laws are sort of circling around the exact idea that you're talking about, which is, shouldn't we just be really transparent about why it is companies pay what they pay, what skills they're paying for, how that's changing or evolving over time based on the priorities of the business, and what it's going to take to get up to the higher levels of, of pay bans. And again, it's, it's something that feels very complex today because of how just archaic our job architectures and leveling and all of those things are because they're based on an old model. Mm -hmm. But I think as we start to modernize, we are going to get closer to something that just feels more equitable, transparent, consistent, and fair, honestly. Uh, Chad mentions the military, uh, and the military has a lot of employees. Uh, this law cuts at 100 <laughs> employees, which is a lot less uh, than the military. Frankly, to me, it seems kind of low uh, for such a bureaucratic um, regulation to, to take hold. We talk about laws that have taken place in Illinois, New York, and Chad and I like to say, if you show us a 10-foot wall, we'll show you an 11-foot ladder. What are companies doing to get around this, whether it's hire contract people, whether it's, oh, we're, we're nearing 100, let's just hire people from the UK, or let's just hire gig workers, or let's put a, a, a range between zero and two million in our job, or let's do it in stock. Like, how are companies getting around this and how is the government going to keep up? Yeah, I, I don't think that companies will skirt around this simply. <laughs> no, they will try. But I was thinking about something similar in from a legislation perspective that happened about 10 years ago when we started mm -hmm. to talk about works councils. And works councils were put in place in companies with over 35 employees. And so everyone was looking at you know, a handful of companies that started to break down their entities and smaller entities never going over 35 employees. Well, you know, if you have to break that down in all these entities, that gets costly very quickly because of all the administration and the taxes and, you know, what else? Mm -hmm. So because the number is set at 100, 
my feeling is that this will not happen. In fact, I have talked over the past uh, couple of weeks with some people that did this for companies with 60 or 70 employees and said mm -hmm. it was no big deal simply because people talk anyways. Everyone in a company knows what you know, their colleagues are making or their teammates or, you know, when it's appraisal time, they want to know what did you get? And most people will maybe not say the number, but they will say the percentage. And so you have an idea of what your colleagues are making. There's ways to skirt around mm -hmm. the official secrecy that happens at the corporate level. I, I, as an American, I think it's cute that you think no one will uh, get, get around this regulation. Uh, Maria, this one's for you. Try. As an American as well, uh, the market <laughs> tends to be the best the best way to get change to happen. Uh, indeed, the number one job search site uh, in America recently said, we're doing pay transparency. If you don't put a job rank or a salary range in a job, we're going to put it in there for you. We've heard and seen anecdotally a lot of companies do it because they don't want Indeed to just throw in whatever number. They want to have some control over that. Do you guys have any uh, inkling or data around what has happened with salaries in postings since Indeed made this change? Are we seeing a lot more pay transparency, a lot more ranges, a lot more applications? Which is another thing that I think Anita touched on is if you put your salary range in a job posting, you're going to get more responses. That's a market force driving change. And I think that's what we're going to see happen. Agree, disagree? Uh, can, I, can I say something to that, sure. Joel? Actually, what happens is you do not get more responses, but you get better qualified responses. You get actually less responses because people self-select out, but the ones that stay in are qualified. The quality is better. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of studies that have come out recently. I'll find the source that say Gen Z won't even apply. Like they, they won't even bother unless there's a salary range. I mean, with current legislation, one fifth of all workers in the United States are covered by some sort of pay transparency legislation today. And obviously the EU broadens that globally. So I don't know anything about like within deeds move what's happened since then. But I, I do think the more and more companies that do this, the more competitive and required it becomes. And I think it's, it's one of these things too, when you think about it, all of this is a brand exercise. It's not necessarily a compliance exercise. I mean, it is, but it all plays back into, are you a brand I can trust? Are you a place that I believe is going to pay me fairly? And there's, there's two sides of this. The side that nobody talks about that I think is really interesting in particular in today's macro environment with the volatility in the market and things like that is that workplace equity is about being fair and equitable to the employee, but it's also about being fair and equitable to the employer. And the employer wants to be sure that their pay policies are driving value from the most productive folks and getting the most business performance for the company. So that's sort of a two-way street in that you have to make sure your pay policies and why you pay what you pay are obviously fair and equitable, but you also want to make sure that you're paying for the things that drive your business forward. And so I think that's the big benefit for employers in this whole conversation is let's get really clear about you know your best negotiator might not be your best person for the job. And in fact, a lot of studies suggest that overconfidence in an interview process is actually linked to the worst performance. So it's good for the employer as well. Is, is there any anything that's going on? Because I guess it cuts both ways in, in some cases. Do you fear that companies will be less likely to give bonuses or, or increase salary? So you have two developers, they're the same title, they make the same money. One is clearly 
performing better than the other. An employer might say, well, I can't do anything because we pay them both the same. Whereas maybe without pay transparency, you would say, okay, we're going to bump up the better one. I mean, do you get around it by giving a new title? Do you give a bonus structure that isn't tr- that's less transparent? Like, How does a company get through that for either of you? The fact that you have equal pay does not mean that you cannot reward people for performance. As long as that is very clear, that, that, that part of pay is performance related, whether that is a bonus or an additional increase. But you have to document it and it has to be used in the overview. So it does not mean that you cannot pay someone a little bit more because they clearly perform appraisal score was four while the other appraisal score was three. So developer number one is the higher performer. Developer number two is the less. Will number two now know that developer number one got a bonus and I have to ask why or will they? Will that be part of the law? Or will that be no? That, so pay transparency means that. So according to the law, you publish pay scales. It does not mean okay. that you publish everyone's individual. So you are transparent on the process, and you are transparent on pay scales if you want to. So I don't have to report a bonus to developer number one. No. Okay. Of course not. Of course not, Joel. Duh. Thanks for clearing that no, up for me. No, of course me. not. No, and I think, I think that's why there's so much talk right now with our customers. For every customer that's putting in performance ratings, there's another customer throwing them out. And so it's really interesting, this whole conversation, because everyone wants employees that are high performers. But this whole idea of how do we actually measure that is something that has been just a mess for decades. And I think what's really interesting about the work that we do is almost consistently when we do our first pay equity analysis with a customer, if they're using performance as a control, meaning if they're using performance as one of the reasons why they pay what they pay, the next question is, oh, do you have a product that can analyze my performance rating to make sure that that's not biased? And and we do, so we can do that. But it's all about then looking at that performance control and, and slicing that and making sure that you don't have the systemic problems that you tend to see with performance, which is women rate very well in performance, but their potential ratings tend to be much, much lower. It's even worse for women of color. So making sure that you're looking at that rating and and taking that pretty seriously is something I would also highly recommend. Yeah. And I think to, to that point, I think that a lot of companies are throwing performance ratings out in a first go is simply because as they are understanding all these contributors to pay, they also realize how biased their current performance ratings are. And when there is bias in your performance ratings, then obviously it's very difficult to use them when you're setting up this whole equal pay initiative. That does not mean that you cannot reintroduce it, but it does mean that you have to make adjustments and probably train your managers and look at the process itself. But afterwards you can definitely use it again. So for me, it sounds like much like we're doing with AI today, it's explainability. Because as we're looking at compliance, you've got to be able to take this mess, this black box, which we always talk about AI being a black box. Same thing with pay. Pay is a black box. Nobody can see in. It's not transparent. So therefore, we've got to be able to provide Again, a cleaner solution with explainability in there so that when you do have compliance and reports and so on and so forth, you know what the hell is going on. I've got one more question. Maria, you talked about trust, right? And how trust 
could actually be synonymous, should be synonymous with your brand. Have you started to see some of your clients start using that trust along with kind of like a narrative within the actual employer brand or the the, the total brand uh, narrative? Absolutely. So we have a certification program that's called Fair Pay Workplace. And the whole point is there's a separate alliance of experts that decides on what is a methodology, standards and tools Mm -hmm. to have a pay equity analysis that is done the right way. Because there's a bunch of ways you can do this wrong. You can disaggregate to green. You can do all the stuff that Joel said, you know, sort of squint and say, well, he's a special snowflake, so he doesn't count. I'm not going to compare him to her. I'm I'm starting to feel triggered, Maria. Watch out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, the cynic, right? So we we put together this certification program so that our customers could actually have this stamp of approval that says, not only are we doing pay equity, we're fair pay workplace certified, we're doing it the right way, everything's above board, and we... uh, We do it as acknowledged by this alliance of experts. So what we're seeing is that so many of our customers are now using that in their recruiting. They're putting it on their website. They're talking about it to new candidates, to existing employees. They're doing town halls around it. They're asking us to come to town halls. And I think there's this really important measure of you are offering me your time and your labor, and I am in return making sure that I value you for that contribution and that I'm analyzing and taking it upon myself as the employer to make sure it's equitable. So we're seeing that really, really start to accelerate because I think companies realize that pretty soon this is going to become table stakes. So the yes. ones that are doing it well now want to try and garner some, some credit and actually mm-hmm. use it as a differentiator while they can. Ladies, thank you for coming on the Chad and Cheese podcast. That is Maria Colacurcio. And Anita Letting. Ladies, if anyone listening want to connect with you or find out more, where would you send them? Anyone can email me. You can email me directly. I'm Maria at SYND.io. And you can find me on LinkedIn or through my website, AnitaLetting.com. Love Too it. Easy. Love it. Chad, that is another one in the can. We got to make it. sure that you and I are both paid equally before we do any more shows <laughs> on this podcast. We out. We out. Wow. Look at you. You made it through an entire episode of the Chat and Chase podcast. Or maybe you cheated and fast-forwarded to the end. Either way, there's no doubt you wish you had that time back. Valuable time you could have used to buy a nutritious meal at Taco Bell, enjoy a pour of your favorite whiskey, or just watch big booty Latinas and bug fights on TikTok. No, you hung out with these two chuggleheads instead. Now go take a shower and wash off all the guilt. But save some soap, because you'll be back. Like an awful train wreck, you can't look away. And like Chad's favorite western, you can't quit them either. We out.